Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And I'm Steven. Who the fudge is Steven? Stackery here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay, I think I think we sound good. Gabby, do we sound good? I think we sound good. We put so much time and effort into this, you guys. We spent almost like two and a half hours yesterday trying to sort this sound out. It was the worst time of my life. Like we literally we spent from like 8 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. on a work night trying to figure out exactly how to make the sound slightly better for y'all. Like The number one complaint that we always get is like, oh, my God, I love the podcast. I love the content. But I keep on hearing like this little hissing or echo or all this other little stuff here. And you know what it is? You know what it is, everyone who is listening on here? Like, yes, we actually legit had some bad mics. We did. We did. We had some issues. We fixed those. But even with, like, expensive good mics, it still never worked. You know what it is? Adobe Audition. And just the way you way you record or try to record audio into it and then move around with it. Like, I don't understand what it is that stops people from being able to do stuff with high quality, like, from the beginning. It just, I, I don't. I don't get it. We're literally using a free voice meter banana. I pay all this money per month for Adobe. Like, don't get me wrong. It's we so pay great for editing. So but. many subscriptions for the recording, which like, thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon and elsewhere so that we're actually able to afford to improve the quality of the podcast because oh, it is God, not yes. cheap. And also, we absolutely had ab- no idea what we were doing. We just... You know, we really wanted to share our stories. So Steven started recording one day and I was like, okay, this could be kind of fun. And then it was just headache after headache, mic after mic, program after program. And it's just, I hope I we're getting like better. I feel like a Frenchman trying to eat potatoes in the 17th century. Okay. Are you referring to the first episode? I'm referring to the first episode of the podcast. Yes. Which for those of you who might be just joining in on us, if you haven't listened to that one to this day, I get told that is the best one. It's it was the, first the best episode one. And it's the best. I think we need to go down a deep dive of cats because I think I have a really cool cats um, podcast episode in mind, and I think a really cool cat on like it's a cat brand that people would appreciate that I would appreciate. Um, so yeah, if there are any we people can pair them that are like I don't know affiliated with brands or anything else like that here, and you're looking at like sponsorships and you want to reach out to us here regarding that. Please feel free to reach out to us here on Discord. You can find the links in any number of the bios that are on here, whether it's my Instagram, uh, Twitch, whether it is what TikTok, like any of it. And Discord that, is yeah, big Discord one. is the big way to get in contact for it here. And if you join, you can send me a message on there. Really, we're looking at trying to expand the experience because right now this all still has ads on it you all have a beginning ad you have a mid-roll ad depending on how long the video or recording is and you have one at the end i am looking at getting rid of all that and instead just having sponsorships something which i think that you all would appreciate in the first place because we wouldn't pick a sponsor that we didn't believe in i think and i think it would really help 
with Steven going full time. Um, it's just something that would be passive. And if you don't want ads, don't forget there's always Patreon. That's $1 a month. So you pay $1, you don't get any ads. It's cheaper than any other subscription I know of. So And if you do that, you also get four additional episodes. I say it four, at least four, because it's... Every episode of the podcast here goes up on Friday, but we also put a second episode, a bonus episode that is another full podcast episode up on Patreon every Friday. But anyway, enough about us. Can we jump into the fourth crusade? Yes, yes, we can, which I am very glad here that you remember the number because yes, indeed, that is. How would I forget the number? I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> just, there's a chance of any of that happening here at this point. Like, to be fair, as you said at work today, like, I can't believe there was eight of them. Because I've never Google, I've never looked into the Crusades. It's not something we learn. It's very European. I mean, it's yeah, very, it's, it's very European to wage war on the Middle East. Like, I'm so sorry. That's not something I personally have ever had to learn for a class. <laughs> All right. So. Also very American, actually. We cannot forget the Americans do, in fact, also like to wage war in the Middle East. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, you can delete all of that. <laughs> no, keep it. <laughs> so, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So we're like halfway there, as I said. Now, I say halfway because, yes, we're at the fourth crusade. So once that's done, technically speaking, that's the halfway point. But there's also all these mini little crusades and i'm going to explain exactly what that means later on um so we covered the first we got the second and we got the third crusade with the first and the third arguably among these this these were the most famous and quote unquote the greatest of the crusades in history but the next one here this my friends is the fourth crusade the one that is not the most famous but rather is probably the more um infamous of them all infamous infamous like Do oh tell. gabby there are so many memes about this on history pages like this this is the this is the crusade this is the event that this is synonymous with like greed with treachery with murder with so much more Genuinely, i thought all of the crusades were that i mean gabby it's warfare in some degree or the other there is going to be an element of that exactly like there is but the fourth crusade is that on steroids it really is as what would happen in here, the events of this would be so important as in the Eastern world, it would bring down the oldest empire in history. Which one is that? Well, we're going to get into that. Oh, my God. But let's start from the beginning so we can establish some context here. I like to do a little recap in order to explain the context of what leads into each event for it here, just so we are aware. The Third Crusade, although it had achieved some notable military successes from 1187 to 1192, it did, in the end fail to completely take the original objective, which was to recapture Jerusalem from the Muslim Sultan of Egypt and Syria, Saladin, which we did that last episode here on Saladin itself after we covered the Third Crusade in the previous, previous episode. And so the celebrated Sultan at this time here was now dead because he only lived until two years after the events of the Third Crusade. So he died in 1193. So he was dead. And yet another crusade was then called because now they had the opportunity to do something. The fourth crusade was thus called by Pope Innocent III. And he... Hold was, on. His name was Pope Innocent? Yeah. Oh, no. They all had that name. They, so, Pope well, Innocent III? It was Innocentus. Like, Innocent. 
but that that, that that's what it so was. So there were three of those. I mean, Gabby, there was. We remember we covered John the Twelfth. Interesting. How many popes have there been? I'm so sorry. I Actually, need to know. That's a good question. There's been, obviously been a lot because. Also, here... when are we gonna have a lady pope? This is my bid to be pope. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, Continue. This is, this is my bid to be pope. She says. Okay. Yeah, I don't think like when we're doing European Universalis and they're talking about the Holy Roman Empress, I don't think that they're talking about raising you to the status of papacy. But if I ever teach you EU four or if EU five comes out. I kind of want to get it for you and have you play the papacy. I'll do it. And see how that goes. I'll do it. You got me right here. I got it. <laughs> so that should be fun. That should definitely be fun. All right. So Innocent Third, he extended the benefit of remissions of sins against previously before it was those who fought the infidels. But now it wasn't just going to be those who fought. Now you also got remission of your sins if you gave the necessary money that would be needed in order to fund a warrior to go in their stead kind of like they think of it like this you remember how you could pay money to get out of a draft and that kind of thing in like the civil war in america and also like world war one and that kind of thing yes okay so imagine it like that except you pay someone else to go fight in the middle east and you get guaranteed to go to heaven wait Wait, 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 wait. So it's like paying, Um, what was what was the thing where you could pay it and then you'd go to heaven? Indulgences? Yeah, it's like paying an indulgence, but someone fought in the crusades for you? Yeah, in fact, yeah, this literally was indulgences. I would love to pay someone. So like if women ever get drafted and there's a war, I would just pay someone to fight for me, right? Is that legal? No. Oh, sorry. Never mind. No, it's not a thing here anymore. Anymore? It's... Oh, yeah, no, there were people here before. What you do is... um. Oh, people had this idea before. <laughs> yeah, Gabby, draft dodgers, that kind of thing. Like people have done I don't want to be a draft dodger. I want to like earn That's my place without That's literally draft dodger. Babe, I can't even do a push up. Do you really think yeah, I have to dodge you... the draft? They won't even accept me, bro. That's, that's kind of the point. But you asked how could you pay your way out of it? That would be draft dodging. No, I don't want to draft medically. dodge. I'm so sorry. No. I just I <laughs> was just thinking that maybe if I paid someone I wouldn't have to do it, but I didn't know that was illegal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of things. Now, that being said, we haven't had an instituted draft since Vietnam. So who knows what potentially could happen here in the future? But OK, that's that's on to a darker, potentially future politics discussion. But we will see. Anyway, returning back to the topic at hand. So th this guy did this, right? He Pope Innocent, he extended this offer for it here where you could basically buy your way into heaven by giving people the opportunity to pay for a warrior to go and fight in the Middle East. But that timing was not exactly the best, especially considering that the Holy City had been in Muslim hands since 1187. And in the final years of the 12th century, all four monarchs of Europe's most powerful militaries, we're talking England, France, Germany, Spain, they were busy with their own internal issues, like, you know, their own civil wars and slash external wars, etc. They weren't really in a position to do anything. And in the case of like England and France, they were just fighting each other constantly over territory. Like that was all the time. These it wasn't good. We're still in April of 1199. The great crusader king Richard of England, he had promised to return to the Holy Land and finish his work of capturing Jerusalem. Because remember, he made a peace treaty with Saladin and then he left going back home because his brother tried to take over the throne. So he went back to, to fix it and that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, uh, that didn't work because he then died while he was on campaign in France. Oh, my which, God. Side note, 
Uh, I gotta say, Richard's death is honestly one of the greatest dumb ones in history that I've talked about. I say dumb. It's more so a famous death in how it occurred here. Because I, I'm, I'm going to set some context. Like, we're sorry he died. It was just very well known how he died. Kind of, but also it's kind of, okay, it's funny, but also the what ended up happening. In it's the funny. It's dark and morbid, and it's not good. Um, at least according to the story. It's funny. Well, I'm, I got to boo you. I'm booing you as we speak. We'll get into it. Okay, we'll get into it. I'll, I'll explain. So. In the Legends of Robin Hood, Richard is like this super benevolent ruler who, after being freed from when he was being held captive in Austria, he forgives his brother John and he returns to the task of governing England. But the funny thing is, Richard the Lionheart, the great king of England, he didn't give a shit about England. Like, he didn't. He had very little an interest in England for his entire life. Like, there's actually this quote to tribute him to, to him that says, if I could have found a buyer... I would have sold and either he, he apparently he either said London or he sold England. Like if he could, he much rather would have just sold off all of it and lived out his life as a ruler in France. Like that is what he liked. That's what he wanted. Why did he hate London? Well, Gabby, you do realize that for the first several hundred years, the English monarchs did not speak English. They spoke French. That's a lot to just drop on someone. Like, that is just so... You can't just say that. Yeah, it, it wasn't until going into the middle of the medieval ages or, like, like later middle, that part. Like, we're talking around, I think it really began seeing it more around the late 1200s going into the early 1300s, around then, I believe. I need to verify that exact number. But essentially, it wasn't for... Like, England was conquered in 1066 by William the Conqueror. It took several hundred years... For the crown of England to speak French or to speak English, not French. Interesting. I did not know that. Because the Normans were a vassal. Like the, the Normans initially came from northern France, like Normandy, that's where that is. And so there's all these territorial interdynastic disputes and claims and these kinds of things. And the English had taken over. And of course, the French court was seen as the like epitome of feudalism i guess you could put it I, I, I talked about that before but essentially it was seen as like the great ideal medieval kingdom like that kind of thing so the the, the english monarchs essentially wanted to be french they wanted to control france that's what was what was more important not england itself for the longest time that, that's pretty much how it was anyway anyway so he was far more interested in fighting over his territory in france than anything else and so he decided in France that what he needed was this super impregnable castle from which he could defend Normandy and then retake critical French lands. And so he built this huge one that required two years of very like punishing around the clock labor. And it costed an estimated 20,000 pounds, which was more than any that had ever been spent on any English castle in the last decade. Now, OK, I did the math on this, Gabby. Do you know how much that is? A lot. So at the time that this is, 43, so that, that is about 43 million pounds. So 20,000 pounds at this time in the late 12th century, that is over 40 million, which is the equivalent today of around $56 million. So that's how much this castle cost him that he $26 made. $26 million. No, 
No, 56. 50, what? Yeah, 56. <laughs> yeah. I did not mean to scream into the, the mic, you guys. I was his country ba- multiple times. Like we 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 raise him up as like this the great English king. But the funny thing is, he hated England itself. Like he did not give two shits about it. And simultaneously, he saw it as just a means to make money to fund his wars. Hold on, is this why we have rules about birthright before you can become leader of a country? Well, that's not exactly why, but I mean, it, it kind of arguably could tie into it. I mean, there's a number of things. There's a number of things for it here regarding the English monarchy that is interesting over time. We, we will probably get into a lot more of those characters here in the future. Now, what most historians agree on here is that in March of 1199, Richard was in Limousin, and he was suppressing a revolt by the Viscount of Limont, and he devastated the Viscount's land with fire and sword, quote-unquote. Then he besieged a nearby small chateau of chalas chevreul and accounts differ as to why. Like, some say that it's because a peasant found a bunch of treasure underground, either, like, Roman gold or some kind of valuable objects, and Richard was so desperate for money, which, I mean, he just spent $56 million on a castle, so maybe. So he laid siege to the castle in order to catch it, but some people say that it was because he did it because he was trying to take over it. Just It was a strategic point. Like, it was something that he would need to have, and it was a rebellious lord. Again, what most historians agree on is that he was there, and while he was walking the chateau's perimeter without wearing chainmail, he was shot by one of the castle defenders with a crossbow, and the wound in his shoulder then turned gangrious and got infected. It steadily grew worse over the next 10 days, and... Uh, some then write according to legend that richard asked that the bowman be brought to him where he then publicly forgave the man who was named peter and instructed that he not be harmed and was even given a reward apparently richard then died in the arms of his mother on april 6th and later defying richard's order that guy peter was apparently by uh richard's subcommanders flayed alive and then hung so they defied his orders and did that in a total dick move apparently interesting we don't know we we don't know that's the story as it goes but that anyway he died in the end that is what happened he died apparently hit by a crossbow bolt as he was walking the perimeter around a castle and his death leads us into the next point which is unlike the previous crusades if we're going back to the fourth one here this one was not going to be a king's crusade like still even though it wasn't a king's crusade, there was a good number of second-tier nobles which insp- were inspired to join up or take the cross, as it was known, especially from northern France. And there were the counts of Champagne, Blois, although the former would die before anything actually happened. You had Joffrey of Villardun, you had Count Baldwin of Flanders, you had Simon de Montfort. In, in August of 1201, the leader of the expedition, after the untimely death of that Theobald of uh, Champagne, like that guy that died, they selected him. The choice of their leader was this huge, rich Italian dude with a very impressive crusader pedigree. Like his family had been doing this for a while. A guy by the name of Marquis Boniface of Montferrat. Perhaps significantly considering the future events that we're going to talk about, Boniface had uh, some serious connections with the Byzantine Empire, as one of his brothers had actually married the daughter of the Byzantine Emperor, Manuel I, and another of his brothers had actually married the sister of the previous Byzantine Emperor, 
Angelos or Isaac II Angelos, who had been de like dethroned from the Byzantine Empire. So in two different ways, he was connected to the old dynasty and the new dynasty that was in charge. And that, that's going to be important later, and you'll see why. In October of 1202, the army was finally ready to set sail from Venice to Egypt, and that was seen effectively as the soft underbelly of the enemy, or at least that was the original plan. It was supposed to essentially be Italy in World War II, but in Egypt, that was the idea. Because when the Crusader army arrived in Venice in the summer of 1202, it was only one-third of what its projected size was supposed to be. They only had 33% of the men that they were supposed to have. What? And you might, yeah, yeah. And you might think, okay, well, why is that a problem? I mean, you, you can just wait for more. Why or you, is they that can a just problem? go and establish a base. Well, yeah, that's the big kicker. There's the big issue. See, when they arrived in Venice, the Venetians were the ones that were supposed to take them across. And so the French had contracted with the Venetians for a massive fleet and for the provisions that they would use to feed the people of that fleet. But now they realized they didn't need it. The fleet wasn't, it was too big. It's like, imagine, imagine if you will, if we all agreed to carpool because 30 people are supposed to show up. So we have 12 cars, right? And then what ends up happening is 10 people show up. Now, all of a sudden, there's more cars than there are people to actually drive. Like, we, we paid the company, we were supposed to pay the company upon showing it up for, uh, for supplying the cars. You get what I mean? Yeah, kind okay. of. So, it, they weren't just paying for the ships, they were also paying for all the food, the fodder, the supplies, like everything that they would really need for the crusade. This was all stuff that they were supposed to be paying for when they were there. And all the crusaders that were supposed to arrive were supposed to bring the money from where they were because you raised funds and then you brought it with you. This was your war chest. Like they didn't have banking for it there to just like digitally transfer any money. You had to physically bring it with you. So all these guys show up in Venice and or along the Venetian coast and like, well, shit, we can't pay for any of this. And naturally, the Venetians were very angry because they had incurred an enormous expense in order to actually pay for this. And they, they were not happy. But, 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 but the Venetians being, you know, the traders that they were, they, of course, they insisted that the 240 ships that they had needed to be paid for. But since the Crusaders could not meet the price of 85,000 silver marks, which you might wonder how much that is. How much is that? Well, that is double the annual income of France at the time. Double? Yeah, imagine if it was like your entire government's budget, but double that. Because mind you, this was, it, this was supposed to be an effort of like eight different major groups coming together. And only a third of them showed up. So all of this money that was supposed to show up to pay for their stuff never appeared. So that 85,000 marks, that wasn't just supposed to all come from France. That was supposed to be split up among all the other different people, but they didn't have it. So not good. Not good at all. Not I good think it's, at all. I think it's all right. Okay. <laughs> so consequently, they made a deal. In return for passage, the Crusaders would stop off at this place called Zara on the Dalmatian coast, and they would reconquer it for the Italians because the city had recently defected to the Hungarians, whose king had also taken the Crusader vow. 
The Venetians would also, in addition to that, provide 50 warships for the Crusaders at their own cost and receive half of any territory conquered. So essentially the deal went like this. It's like, okay, okay, okay. We The Venetians are going to promise to be Crusaders as well, but because they're supplying all of the supplies, they're going to get half of all the territory that con- gets conquered. And in addition to that, the Crusaders have to be mercenaries and go sack and destroy this Christian town and reclaim it for us. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're... we're I feel like I zoned out for two seconds and then you were like, the Crusaders have to go sack and destroy this Christian town. And I was like, wait. Yep. <laughs> Something isn't adding up. Like two plus two equals ten. Yep. Except the ten is on fire and it's currently crying. That's pretty much what happened for it here. Carry on, history man. So they go and do it. And they sack and burn and a lot of bad They shit did happens. it? Oh no, they did. Why it. would they do it? They're also they're literally the Christian Crusaders. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. pretty much what other people wondered. They sold it. This They were sellouts. Yeah, they, they literally, they became mercenaries. That's not... What? I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. This yep. is just really hard to wrap my head around. Yep, yep. Now, noticeably, of course, the Pope was obviously not pleased that this happened because he heard news that Christian Zara had been sacked on the 24th of November in 1202, and so he promptly excommunicated the Crusaders and the Venetians. Now, when he did this, the ban was later lifted for the Crusaders because otherwise there was no point. Like, there just wasn't a point. He had to lift the ban on the Crusaders because, well... They're still on crusade. They still have a target that they're going after. The Venetians, of course, no. Screw the Venetians. That was the idea of the Pope. Like, they're... Mm-mm-mm. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. No. Like, he just didn't want anything to do with them. And it's true that many of the leaders of, like, the Crusade, notably Simon of uh, Montfort, he actually refused to attack Christian Zara, and a significant number of the men even left the crusade over it. So mind you, mind you, in the beginning, only a third of the people that were supposed to show up actually showed up. Then they attack a Christian settlement after not being able to pay for their territory, so they sell themselves out as mercenaries, and that causes a further dispute among the few crusaders who did show up, causing more to leave. Because that, they, don't, they didn't want to be part of it. I mean, that that's yeah, that's just what happened. That that's that's just what happened when you have absolutely no other way to describe it. Yeah. Now next is um next is gonna get a little more interesting because it's gonna get worse. Now, people continue to debate the exact reason as to why the Crusaders turned on Constantinople instead of uh, you know, their original target Jerusalem. But there is actually one cre- uh, like crucial ingredient in all of this trouble and that is that there was a lot of mutual suspicions between the western powers and byzantium with people like the republic of venice i say people like it was more the so the ruler of it uh it was this guy called enrico dandolo he was old like he was old he was blind he had been around for quite a while and he was intent 
on winning Venetian dominance in trade in the East. See, before, he had actually been an ambassador in Constantinople when he served there, but was rejected, not rejected, what's the term? Ejected, that's right, he was kicked out. So that, 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 that's the word. So he got kicked out of Constantinople and he was pissed. So after all these years, now it seemed like it was as good a time as any to install a new um, sympathetic ruler, someone who was a little more uh, keen as to his goals for trade. You see, Alexios IV Angelos, whose father Isaac II Angelos had been deposed as emperor seven years earlier, he had been touting for Western support for quite some time. And that would allow Venice, in order to get several steps ahead in long-term trade rivals over Pisa and Genoa, because there were other little trade cities that were all over Italy, and these were the two big ones. You had Pisa and Genoa. And so if he could take control of this, then that would be a really big deal because potentially he could corner the trade market within the Byzantine Empire. So, I mean, it may have then been the goal of Dandolo and the Crusaders to try and at first pass through Constantinople, you know, put a new emperor on the throne and then just carry on their merry little way to Jerusalem with their ships resupplied and their coffers filled. Seems like a great idea. But... Given the recent history of rebellions and takeovers in Byzantium, that's probably a little bit too simple of a way to think about it. Because, I mean, certainly things turned out to be a whole lot more awful than anyone ever actually anticipated. Literally everything about this has been chaotic and awful. Yeah. yeah. No offense, I'm just confused oh it gets worse it gets worse oh it gets worse that's so good i love when things get worse because when you're like oh man this is pretty much as bad as it can possibly get then history goes nah man hold my beer oh yeah oh that's definitely the case that is absolutely the case because you see in addition to those material gains for venice like another one of the possible motivations for them uh targeting constantinople is that the pope might then be able to achieve supremacy of the western church over the eastern church because the Crusaders were going to get revenge against the Byzantines. Did you remember in the previous episodes on the Crusades when we covered all of the, um, like the agreements and the mistrust and all that stuff that was occurring between the Byzantine Empire and the Crusaders that were going over? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so needless to say, none of them were happy with each other. And, and just to recap some of the stuff for those of you who are not aware of what I'm talking about. Essentially, during the First Crusade, there was this agreement that any territory that was taken in uh, like Anatolia and all along there would be given to Byzantium because it was territory that they previously controlled that had been taken over by the Seljuk Turks. But after a bunch of confusion and misunderstandings and a bunch of other things, the Crusaders just ended up keeping a bunch of the territory. And that's where you saw a lot of the Crusader states come into being. And this is one of those things that just neither side trusted the other. Like, they, they just didn't. So the Crusaders were going to get revenge against the Byzantines for all their unhelpful support in the previous Crusades. And perhaps all along the way, they were going to pick up some glory, get some booty. Maybe both literal Wait, and... did you say booty? Yeah. Like treasure or booty? Yes. <laughs> Continue. I'm just going to say Yes. So it may not, it may not, as some of the more conspiracy theory, like written historians may have said, that the whole thing was planned out and that all of this was supposed to happen by all the parties. But in the end, it doesn't matter because what happened 
in the Fourth Crusade is that Byzantium's capital, Constantinople, was sacked and Jerusalem was going to be left for a much later date. So let's get into the story of exactly how that happens. The Crusader army arrived outside of Constantinople on the 24th of June in 1203. The force consisted of around 4,500 knights and their squires and up to 14,000 infantry along with 20 to 30,000 Venetians. The first target of this was going to be the Byzantine emperor, uh, emperor, the garrison at nearby Galata, which was on the shore of the Golden Horn. Thus, this was the massive chain on here. It blocked the harbor. So, Gabby, have you ever wondered how they defend, um, how do you defend a harbor? Like, how do you stop a boat from entering when it's, like, really big water? So. When there's really big water and there's a boat coming towards you, what I would imagine I would do is I would shoot a cannon directly at it. If that doesn't work, what I'm going to do is I'm going to... What if cannons don't exist? I'm going to get a giant pump. <laughs> and then I'm going to pump all of the water <laughs> out of the ocean. <laughs> and you then know. I will solve that problem. Gabby, I am not going to lie. I genuinely thought you were about to say something that actually did happen there. Oh, no. You can... pump? Oh, did I disappoint you? No, no, no. I mean, yeah. But... Oh, but what I'm talking about is when you said pump, I'm like, oh, my God, is she going to remember Greek fire and them using pumps to literally just eject this flammable burning liquid onto st stuff? And no, no, no. Why would I remember the ocean? <laughs> well, like not the ocean, but like maybe if the water comes into like a little lake lock thing, you just drain that that and then damn the other. I don't know. OK, so let I me don't know this here. <laughs> What a har you know how what a harbor is. A harbor is typically enclosed on two sides, which allows there to be significantly less resistance. Or I say resistance. What's the term? Uh, interference from waves and other tidal issues when trying to dock boats. Like you need I'm a from safe a tropical harbor. island. Of course, I know what a harbor. Har harbor. Yeah, but you like you guys say, weird. you may not understand. A lot of people don't understand necessarily what defines it or what makes a harbor a harbor. Like why it's called that. It docks boats. It docks boats. Like, that's all I have. Yes. But you know how harbors on two sides, it typically ejects, like natural harbors, it ejects out into the ocean. Like, you might have two cliffs that kind of eject outwards on both sides, and then there's a bay that leads in, that kind of thing. Yeah, kind okay. of. So, a key way that people would defend these kinds of things is that it would get a massive chain, right? And what you would do is you would hook up these chain links on to to both sides of the harbor and then when enemy ships were coming in you would draw the chain taunt just at the water line and then all these ships that are trying to come in would hit the chain and the chain would rip them in half and that's the way you defended it because ships couldn't literally could not cross the chain wait why did i why didn't i think of that that's so brilliant exactly oh. like it's genuinely awesome Sometimes I think I'm smart, and then other times I'm like not smart enough, not smart enough to just like survive the Crusades, obviously. Yeah. So what they did, they attacked this one settlement in order to make sure that that massive chain that blocked the harbor of the Golden Horn, that it could be lowered, and that the Crusader fleet could then directly attack Constantinople's seawalls if it was required. At the same time, siege engines were built in readiness to attack the city's formidable fortifications on the land side which was the Theodosian Walls, and the incumbent emperor, Alexios III Angelos, he was caught completely unprepared from the arrival of the Crusaders and fled the city on the 17th of July, 1203. So now 
they got no emperor. Like, it, the whole city is defenseless, and they have no idea what they're going to do. So, the Crusaders' first move was to attempt to put their own supporter on the throne, Alexios IV Angelos, along with his father, the former emperor, Isaac II Angelos. It, there's a lot of Angeloses. It, it's, it's a, it gets really confusing really fast when you're looking at it like this. But welcome to medieval names. So... It was now, though, that the Westerners realized that Alexios' promise of, like, gold and treasure and food and all this stuff, yeah, that was false. It was, oh my god. Yeah, no, that he couldn't do shit because the pair, the pair that came onto the throne, they were so unpopular with the Byzantines, largely thanks to uh, sustained propaganda against them by their successor that departed Alexios III and the obvious threatening presence of the crusader army that was camped outside their walls and whom the new emperor actually had no way to pay them the money that he had promised them. And so, consequently, with the throne now effectively empty and with no support from the people, the army, nothing, a usurper stepped up and he staged a coup. A guy by the name of Alexios V, Ducas, named Merstephalus, I, I guess that's how I would say or Mutsufilis. I, I, I genuinely am not sure how I would pronounce his name, but he was called this because, like, within Greek, essentially it was, like, bushy eyebrows. Bushy eyebrows. <laughs> that was his name. That's why he was called that. Because he what was his name really, again? Uh, Mertzufilis. Zufilis. Okay. Steven, your new name is Mertzufilis. You're welcome. Wow. Gee, thank you. I'm sorry. I mean, am I wrong? Anyway, bushy eyebrows boy, he promised to defend the city at all costs against the Crusaders, and he seized the throne after executing his predecessors, both the father and the son, together. And so in January of 1204, Constantinople's walls were strengthened, its towers got built even bigger, and several raids were made against the Crusader camps. It was not looking good for them. The Crusaders, with their diplomatic avenues exhausted and their supplies running low and their ships in need of repair they didn't really have any other option but to just storm the city and take it by force and so they launched an all-out attack on the morning of the 9th of april 1204 but the byzantines repelled it then on the 12th of april the crusaders attacked the weaker sea walls of the harbor and they targeted two of the towers in particular by lashing two of their ships together and then ramming them repeatedly against the walls. Because, Gabby, do you, do you know how strong walls actually are? I would imagine very... Well, walls are as strong as a kyle. So you have, like, for every... Like, the strength of a wall, you have a kyle that equally counters that wall that can take it down. Gabby, that's actually a really good example. Wait, what? I, no, I was memeing. No, that is, that is. Think about it. Kyle's punch drywall, right? Right. Like, you look at a wall. We look at, we're in the garage right now. Like, you look at this. And yeah. if you look behind you, it's drywall. Yeah. If you punched that, and you punched it hard enough, even if it kind of hurts your hand, you would be able to punch through that wall, right? Yeah, I would. Okay, okay. The same premise applies to any kind of wall, because unless a wall is solid stone throughout the whole thing... It's not actually as strong as what you think it is. The majority of walls throughout history, they were not hollow, but they kind of were. The outside was stone and brick, and then the inside was like dirt, 
rubble, clay, other stuff like that. It wasn't solid stone. Okay. So if you were able to break through the outer layer of a wall, you could force through and make a whole section crumble. Okay. You said medieval walls. So are we? does that count for castle walls? Yes. All of their walls? Yeah. I mean, you had walls that were reinforced and, you know, they had additional layers of stone, etc. But do you have, Gabby, if you had solid stone walls, do you have any idea just how, A, expensive that would be? And B, time-consuming, that would be to make. I'm assuming if I were a queen, though, I could just have them build a solid stone wall, right? Yes, you could. It would be ridiculously expensive to do so. To Why would I have to pay them? I'm the queen. That, That's how economies work. You still have to... T- <laughs> okay, that's what you say, but as the queen, I don't have to pay them. Thank you. Okay. And you hear to hear, folks. Uh, for those of you who play European Universalis, four with us, uh, all praise the word of your empress that you voted into power. I'm just saying. So, anyway, they lash their ships together and they bash it repeatedly against the wall in order to break through and create a breach. The attackers then smash through the city gates and do you know what follows? I'm guessing a raid of some sort. Uh, they smash through the city walls, right? Replace the D with a P. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, what followed? A rap? A... <laughs> you said replace the D <laughs> with a P. Why did I think that raid was spelled R A D E? I'm so sorry. We should edit this part out, right? That sounds so weird now. We should edit it out, right? Leave it. Leave it. Everyone knows that I'm not perfect. It is what it is. So anyway, what followed was a slaughter. That's the gist of it here, is that they slaughtered the defenders and a lot of the city's people. Like, there was 400,000 individuals in here. And then citizens were raped. They were massacred. Buildings were torched. Churches were desecrated. Ducas, that guy who had taken over the throne, he fled to Thrace. And what was followed was three days of looting. Artwork was destroyed, precious goods from the church, like all these very valuable statues and all these other things in here. They were melted down. Religious artifacts were taken back to Europe. It was... It was awful. And after the looting finally ended, the Partitio Romane Treaty, which was already decided on beforehand... It carved up the Byzantine Empire among Venice and its allies. The Venetians took three-eighths of Constantinople itself, the Ionian Islands, Crete, Euboea, Andros, Naxos, a few others, and some strategic points along the coast of the Sea of Marmara. And thus, the Venetian control of the Mediterranean trade was now almost total. On the 9th of May, 1204, Count Baldwin of Flanders was made the first Latin emperor of Constantinople, and he was crowned in the Hagia Sophia, receiving five-eighths of Constantinople and one-quarter of the empire, which included Thrace, Northwest Asia Minor, several of the Aegean Islands, etc. That guy before Boniface of Montferrat, he took over like th- this region called Thessalonica, and he created a new kingdom there, which also included Athens and Macedonia. And then in 1205, following Baldwin's capture after a battle with the Bulgars defending his country in Thrace and the subsequent death in a Bulgar prison, William I 
Champlet and Joffrey the First Vilhardwin, like that guy we covered in the beginning, is one of the Crusaders. He was the nephew of this big historian at the time. He founded a Latin principality in the Peloponnese, while the French Duke Othon de la Roche he grabbed Attica and Boeotia. I know you don't recognize a lot of the names from what I'm describing, but I want you to essentially imagine that the entirety of Greece has now been torn apart into all these little petty Latin kingdoms, counties, and other little shit. Like, they, they've taken apart the entire thing. The, 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 the Byzantine Empire is gone. Like, it, it got wiped out, essentially. The only thing left was a couple rump states. because And they would actually come back, though. See, the Byzantine Empire would end up reestablishing itself in 1261, but at that point, 50 years later, it was a shadow of its former self. When the forces of the Empire of Nicaea, which was the center of the Byzantines in exile, they retook Constanti like Constantinople and they established themselves, and you had Emperor Michael VIII, who was able to place his throne back into the palace of his Byzantine predecessors. This, this was crazy. Debbie, the Byzantine Empire wasn't called the Byzantine Empire. It was the Roman Empire. This was the fall, like the actual fall of the Roman Empire. The longest state to ever exist in history. Now, mind you, since it got reestablished and would last another 200 years... It still is to this day the longest lasting state, lasting approximately 1,000 years. Well, over 1,000, actually. No, what am I saying? Like 1,500 years, approximately? I can't do math. Please do not ask me to do math. Gabby, yeah, it's insane just how long lasting it actually was. But yes, it it was insane. And which, it, perhaps understandably, the shock of losing Constantinople had that took all the attention of the fourth crusade but there was this small contingent of western crusaders that was led by renard the second dampierre which did actually fulfill the original purpose of their expedition and they did reach the middle east late mind you in april of 1203 these 300 knights were too few to ever actually consider doing anything so they did manage to assist the Latin states in perpetuating their actual existence. But other than that, there was no other support. Like the Crusader states that were still there, they expected like, oh my God, okay, we're still going to be getting some support. Awesome. A whole Crusader army is coming. And that Crusader army just turns around, attacks Constantinople, and then the, just abandons everything. It just, oh my God. <laughs> oh, so in September of 1203... In coalition with the now tiny kingdom of Jerusalem, the Crusaders attacked a few minor targets in Muslim-held Galilee. A plague in Acre then wiped out half of the Crusader force, but as the ruler of, Damascus, uh, of, ruler of Damascus, Al Malik Al Adil, he seemed really intent on avoiding a direct confrontation. Certain territories were conceded to the kingdom of Jerusalem, including Nazareth, Jaffa, Ramla, and a strip of land near Sidon. Then, in August of 1204, the Crusaders did twice successfully attack the forces of Hama in central Syria, but it was, though, all rather insignificant, considering that the original goals of Pope Innocent III with the fifth, like, the, the, the goals 
were just to take Jerusalem. Like, once again, they didn't do anything. <laughs> and with the Fifth Crusade concentrating on North Africa and Egypt, it wasn't going to be until the Sixth Crusade that Christians would actually go after Jerusalem again. Which we're going to cover all that in a later point here. We might even do the Fifth and the Sixth Crusade at once. I don't know. It really just depends. The Fourth Crusade was, in the end, nothing more than an absolute terrible sham. And anyway, so that that is it. That is literally the Fourth Crusade. That chaotic, utter bullshit. <laughs> oh my god. Like in the future here, we gotta we gotta go into some of the mini crusades in here because there's like the children's crusade. There's stuff that occurred with like um there's all these different ones that were occurring in the Baltics. There's all these ones that were occurring down in Spain, these other ones. Like there's a lot of different stuff in here that we need to cover here in the future. And I really can't wait to go into that. But honestly, at this point, I think that that is enough for today because, uh, yeah, that was one chaotic maelstrom after the other. Also, one really cool thing that I think we're going to be implementing this month is we want to get stories from you guys so a lot of people message us and they're like hey my great 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 granddad was this person i'm related to this other historical figure and i would like to hear those stories so i think it'd be really cool if at the end of like each episode we highlighted one person's family member so if you have any cool historical family members just you know email us at which email do you want Honestly, do the, let's say the work with stack. Like how did work with stackui at gmail.com. So W-O-R-K-W-I-T-H-S-T-A-K-U-I-I at gmail.com. So email those stories there because we would love to hear about you guys family members and everyone you're related to and i think on each episode at least once a week we'll highlight someone's like historical family member which i guess it doesn't have to be someone famous it could be anyone like hey my granddad served in vietnam i don't know send it to us we'll talk about how cool he was yeah if you have information on what it is that they served in if there was any kind of unit of distinction or anything like that to talk about as a whole then that would be great and then honestly from there what i would say is thank you thank you to all of you who have participated who have listened who have done some amazing stuff with us thank you guys we'll see you next time goodbye guys. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.